Cusick Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Don't underestimate the other guys, Green. Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me rolling. Laws Fighting for Justice Radio analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers all legal current events. Each week, Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. Now it's time for Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for listening. We really appreciate it. We have another fantastic show for you today. And remember to check out our website at kuziklaw.com. That's K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. And let your friends know about the show. We'd love for them to listen, too. People can listen to our podcast on iTunes, or they can go on the Internet at www.blogtalkradio.com slash kuziklaw. Now, we have six stories for you this week. Here on Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Reed Brightman, Robert Ryan, and Mark Leonardo, we analyze interesting civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and we cover legal current events. Today, we have six news stories of the week, and then after that, we have a segment with our guest, Attorney Brian Mahaney, who is a health care attorney handling an interesting class action. After that, we'll do Reed's rant if we have time, and then we'll wrap it up from there. Again, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice. And now to the first story of the week. Very interesting story that Mark Leonardo is handling. There, a In the city of Fresno, a man was run over by a police officer, and he was riding a bike and trying to escape from being pulled over when the police over – the police officer ran him over, and the big dispute was whether this intentional or not. Mark, tell us about the story. Right. Right. Um... Here's what happened according to a ruling by the judge in the civil case. Uh, Apparently there was a summary judgment motion last summer, and the judge made uh, findings of fact. And these are the facts from what his ruling said. Uh, That Back in August 23rd of 2013, around 7.30 p.m., there were two officers in a car, Officer James Lyon and Kenneth Webb, and they attempted to stop uh, Angel Toscano and another bicyclist, this is in Fresno, California. And the two riders were suspected of riding on the wrong side of the road and running a stop sign. Not exactly the type of uh, crime you would expect that would lead to the death of a, a suspect. Uh, anyway, so when they stopped, um, Webb got out of his car, patrol car, to detain one bicyclist, and then Toscano just took off. And so Officer Lyon began to chase him with his patrol car. Um, Officer Lyon chased Toscano down a street and then into an alley, uh, reaching speeds of up to about 45 miles per hour. Um, it noted the court order said the patrol car was fishtailing into the alley, going very fast, and there was a really loud revving sound as the patrol car went down the alley, according to the judge. Um, and during the chase, Officer Lyon forgot to activate uh, the lights and siren on his car. And in his deposition, Officer Lyon testified that he nearly always chases cyclists with the use of, without the use of lights or sirens. Um, so once he that got into the alley, weird. it is weird. And, and once he got into the alley, Officer Lyon saw Toscano getting tired because his right foot kept coming off of the pedals, and he was holding his one hand against his chest. 
but as the pursuit ensued, um, Officer Lyon realized that his car might pose a danger to Mr. Toscano. Um, and he, at about, when he was going about 20 miles per hour, um, he struck the rear end of Toscano's bike. And then he fell, and then he ran him over. Um, he, accordingly, he supposedly accidentally hit the gas pedal instead of the brake pedal when he ran him over. And he well, died did the officer say he accidentally hit the gas pedal, or wasn't that the uh, allegation of the, uh, the the lawyer, the victim's attorney? That's the victim's attorney's suspicion. Right. Um, the, law, the officer didn't, didn't say one way or the other. Right. Um, but they, the investigating officer found there was no evidence of any breaking before the impact. So right. that was somewhat telling. Um, so Lyon told investigators that striking the bicycle with a patrol car would violate department policy. And he also admitted that striking someone with a patrol car would constitute deadly force. So he said some damning things in, in his own defense. Um, and the case was turned over to the district attorney's office for possible prosecution for vehicular manslaughter, uh, but court records show that he that was never charged for Toscano's death. Oh, there's a surprise. Well, yeah, it does seem like an accident. I don't think the, the cop just went over. Oh, come over. on. I mean, how many times have you seen this situation? This is just one accident. I understand that. But what do you have here? First of all, most bicyclists don't even know what side they are lawfully required to ride on with respect to uh, riding in the roadway. You know, and many jurisdictions have different rules with respect to whether you're supposed to ride with the flow of traffic or against the flow of traffic. And everybody knows that bicyclists do not honor stop signs. So under these circumstances, right. you have to wonder what kind of departmental policy they have in place that will allow a police chase against a bicyclist for a minor traffic infraction. I mean, many jurisdictions are now starting to put in place rules that limit the type of activities that police can then ensue with a police chase because of the grave threat to life and limb to even innocent bystanders such chases uh, uh, represent. And here you have a situation where somebody ends up losing their life because of what? Running a stop sign on a bicycle. It's just part of that same arrogance mm. that police have where if somebody doesn't instantly obey their directions, they seem to get like make it very personal very quick and then try to take extreme measures to bring the other person or the suspect or whoever it is, you know, to be sub subjected to their authority. And that's pretty clear what happened here. And I really think this is outrageous. And I think $675,000 is getting off lightly for this, for this whole uh, fiasco. I, thought that was no, I, have I, I have a different take on it because I have to respectfully disagree with you, Robert. I, this guy did not die because he ran a stop sign. He died because he resisted a stop. He should have stopped like the other bicyclist. The other bicyclist didn't get hurt or injured in any way. This guy ran. And it's the same kind of thing that I keep saying. If you listen to the instructions of a police officer and, and realize that you're talking, you know, police officers have guns, okay? If somebody with a gun tells you to do something, you do it. If it's a criminal and you're getting robbed in front of a bank teller machine, somebody points a gun at you, do you start arguing? Do you, do you attack them? No, you give them your wallet and you don't risk your life. Okay. Well, I think that's and an interesting analogy to compare, you know, the, the peace officers of, of a particular jurisdiction with a bank robber holding a gun. And that if you don't is. follow their directions and you lose your life, somehow it's considered your fault. Well, you're taking a risk. The point is you're taking a risk. And with, with police officers, I think most people pretty much know that if they follow the instructions of the police officer, they 
are not going to get beaten up or shot or killed or something like that. They might get inconvenienced. Like in this case, the guy would have gotten a ticket or, or whatever the officer was planning on doing. Um, but he certainly wouldn't have gotten run over by the police car had he never run. Well, but a refusal, but a refusal to, follow, to follow the directions of a police officer, you shouldn't have to forfeit your life as a penalty. That's, right. not, well, that's I, not a respectable rule in, in a society, it seems to me. I agree with that, you but got, you shouldn't run effect. because you risk your life. What I would be really upset about, much more so at least, I mean this was a tragedy, but I, I, it seems to me that it was accidental. But what I'd be more concerned about is is what you mentioned earlier, where you know running a stop sign on a bicycle does not justify the risk, not to the bicyclists, but to other people. Uh, bystanders, innocent bystanders of any kind of police chase. Now, if it was a 20-mile-an-hour police chase, you know, I don't think there's much risk to other bystanders. But it was going up to 45 miles an hour, and it was you know, an alley and maybe tight turns and stuff like that. It would have been a, a much more horrendous tragedy if some kid got run over by that police officer when he took a turn chasing after a, a bicyclist for a stop sign. An excellent so, point, an excellent point, which is why I think that the, the municipalities or the jurisdictions that are putting limitations on the circumstances under which these police chases can be initiated are really taking a step in the right direction. Because clearly, if some innocent third party lost his life as a result of trying to chase a bicyclist down to give him a ticket for running a stop sign, I mean, I'm sure we would all be aghast that that's a completely inappropriate use of the police enforcement power. Exactly. I fully agree hey, with that. And I like one that, of the, that direction. One of the, one of the facts you guys don't know here is that the, at the time of this happened, Toscano was a felon. He was on probation, which is probably why he took right. off. Well, that's why he took off. Yeah. Well, know, did the police officer know that, though? No, he didn't. No, of course he didn't. Okay. So, no, so the police officer is out there fishing because I don't think any police officer typically is going to be pulling over a bicyclist for a stop sign violation. So this police officer must have seen or sensed something about these bicyclists that led him to conclude that there was, there was something bigger at stake, which is why he probably engaged in this behavior. But that's not what the basis for police stops can be legally under the Constitution in the United States. You can't just look at somebody and think, hmm, something looks fishy here, and then initiate this kind of police chase for something as trivial as a stop sign violation for a bicyclist and then create this risk to the greater society at large. Right. All right, let's move on to the next story. Uh, Robert Ryan has an interesting story about a bus driver admitting to leaving an autistic teenager in his bus, uh, which caused the teenager to die because all the windows were closed and it was over 90 degrees outside. And apparently the teenager was just left there all day. He had special needs, so he didn't, he, the teenager couldn't communicate and didn't know how to get out of the bus. What happened, Robert? Well, back in September of 2015, a 19-year-old autistic man named Paul Lee boarded a bus for a transitional program for autistic adults at Sierra Vista High School in California. Um, apparently, he never got off the bus in the morning, um, and when the bus driver uh, made his rounds, he was supposed to have picked the boy back up at 4 o'clock and taken him home. What the bus driver did instead was he drove to the bus lot, locked up the bus, did his paperwork, and went home. The, mo the, boy of, uh, the boy's mother was frantic because he did not come home as uh, scheduled at 4 o'clock, and so she called the bus company, she called the police. Uh, the bus company called the driver back, and he went back on the bus, and he found uh, the 19-year-old man unconscious in the back of the bus. Apparently something had happened that caused him to never uh, get off the bus originally at 
8.30 in the morning when he was supposed to. Um, really, really sad, tragic case. Uh, the, the 19-year-old uh, man uh, could not communicate. Uh, he had special needs. And for some reason, the bus driver did not check the bus uh, before he locked it up and completed his paperwork for the day. Now, he was charged uh, with uh, various crimes associated with this death uh, and ended up pleading guilty to one felony count of something called dependent adult abuse. Uh, California has a statute similar to elder abuse laws where if uh, if you're found guilty of certain uh, conduct towards uh, a dependent adult, it's the same thing sort of as elder abuse. And he did plead guilty to one felony count, and he faces up to two years in prison as a result of that uh, plea. Yeah, I'm surprised at that because, you know, obviously the, the, the bus driver was negligent. There's no question about that. And there should be a suit, you know, a civil suit against the bus driver and, and his employer uh, to redress that. But it seems criminal you have to have what what lawyers call mens rea that's criminal intent why would he why would they even charge him when the guy he made a mistake he didn't follow the the bus company's rules by walking to the back of the bus and just looking at all the seats and making sure there's no kids still sitting there um why is that you criminal know, you know that's that's a good question apparently the dependent adult abuse statute does not require that type of specific indent and you know, you make a good point concerning will there be a lawsuit. In fact, there was a wrongful death lawsuit that was filed against Pupil Transportation Co-op, which is the uh, operator of the buses and the employer of the bus driver who uh, who left the uh, left this man in the back of the bus. Um, and as a result of that lawsuit, uh, legislation was passed uh, about a year ago uh, that have new uh, requirements for school buses. Now they're required to have a safety alarm that emanates um, a, loud, a loud noise when the engine is turned off, following which uh, the bus driver is supposed to walk to the back of the bus and make a physical and manual inspection of the bus to make sure there's nobody left on it. Also, it requires that uh, child safety training uh, be engaged in with respect to bus drivers every year when they recertify uh, their safety certificates. So there has been some good that has come out of this as a result of new legislation and making people aware of this kind of issue. Um, but I agree. I mean, for a felony count with uh, uh, facing two years in state prison, for somebody who just looks like he's maybe was kind of in a daze or didn't follow through, uh, it seems maybe harsh. Sick. Maybe he was yeah. feeling sick. I don't know. But, you know, this guy's going to have a felony uh, conviction on his record involving a death, his his life is ruined. He can't get a job anymore. He he he's it's, it's. I don't think that this this type of a mistake warrants that that much punishment. And it seems harsh. He was years. taken into custody upon entry of his guilty plea. He hasn't even yeah. been sentenced yet, and he was taken into custody. So yeah, maybe they'll give him yeah. time served. But still, I mean, his record. I mean, it's, his life was ruined. It's, that's, kind of, that's a tragedy on all sides. And one thing that I read I do like is that they that, that new law, first of all, I think that's a great law. It was It's a reasonable uh, safety precaution. It doesn't cost a lot of money for bus companies uh, to put a, a an alarm, and it doesn't take very much time for a person to walk to the back. They should do that anyway. They were required to anyway. Uh, and I like the fact that the law was actually named after – Paul Lee, the the unfortunate 19-year-old man that lost his life in this. All right, you're listening to Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. We're going to move on to our next story, which is Mark Leonardo's story about the Amazon Echo. This is very interesting. 
the, the there is a murder trial going on, and the prosecutors have subpoenaed Amazon to see if they can get some data that came off of one of those Amazon Echo products, which is the Alexa thing where you can it, it kind of runs your smart house and you can tell it to turn the lights on or turn the water on or off or whatever. Tell us about that, Mark. Yeah, for those of you that don't know the Amazon Echo, it's kind of like the takeoff from the iPhones with Siri. You know, you mentioned it's Alexa. You you talk to Alexa, this little little device. It's a smart speaker and it's a personal assistant device that responds to voice commands. And over this past Christmas holiday, it was uh, Amazon's biggest selling product with millions sold worldwide. And you know, it, as you said, it, the Echo has a a bunch of uses. It streams music. It reads audio books out loud. And, and now the Arkansas prosecutors are, are trying to use it to solve a murder. So in this particular case, last year, uh, uh, the body of an individual named Victor Collins was found floating in a hot tub, hot tub at his friend's home in Arkansas. And his friend, James Bates, uh, was subsequently charged with murder. And so now the prosecutors are trying to use the echo as evidence in the case. Um, they found one of these Echo devices at the Bates property, and they requested the court to compel Amazon to provide data from the Echo device, believing that it may reveal more information about what happened that night uh, at the time of the murder. So it's so, a fishing expedition. It's definitely a fishing expedition. I mean, they don't have any evidence that they don't have any supposition or even any clue or hint that there's anything on this device or this data they're seeking to have the production compelled from Amazon that would shed any light on this murder. Nope, they're just thinking right. maybe some, something will be on there. So back in August, the judge signed a search warrant requesting that all audio recordings, transcribed records, text records, and other data from the Bates Echo. Uh, should be released from from Amazon, but so far Amazon has yet to fully comply. And they take the position that they will not release customer information without a valid binding legal demand. Now, if the judge signed a search warrant, I'm not sure what more they need, but so far they haven't uh, haven't complied. I think they claim so, that the search warrant was overbroad and, and vague. And I think uh, they're absolutely right because I read the language of that search warrant. I can't believe a judge signed it to tell you the truth. Yeah, me too. Um, although, you know, it's interesting because if the owner of that device asked, you know, consented to it because it would help in his defense of the of the charges, um, I wonder if Amazon's position would be different, you know, because then it's a it's not an invasion of privacy. It's that everybody is searching for the truth. Um, but but, you know, in reading this, it seems to me that. A, it's a huge fishing, fishing edition, a fishing expedition, and B, even if they get information from the Amazon Echo, it's not going to have like a recording that says uh, "Stand there while I shoot you" or or some kind of a, you know, some very incriminating. You mean something uh, like uh, Alexa uh, research uh, disposition of dead bodies? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, that would be helpful. But if, uh, it, you know, you have to say Alexa first, and I have a Alexa, feeling nobody research, was research Alexa. remote sites where I might dump a corpse. Right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, you know, I have a feeling that nobody was saying Alexa help me or Alexa, this guy's going to shoot me or anything like that. Um, so, But they were trying to say, see if there's some data on there that might indicate that too much water was being used and somehow Alexa would know that. Um, it just seems pretty thin to me 
and you know on the one hand but on the other hand you know in cases like this it's a balancing test right you're balancing the one person's right of privacy which is pretty important with another person's life you know when they're being charged with murder uh and so you know, the court has to weigh that, and I have a feeling that that's where the court came out. The court decided, you know, it's more important to get to the truth than to protect some well, guys. Well, wait a second usage. now. We do, have, we do have the Fourth Amendment, right? And, I mean, that protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures, except upon warrants with specified with particularity the places and, and things to be searched. I mean, there are legal mm-hmm. standards here that seem to be violated by this kind of subpoena, which just is like this dragnet of, like, anything that might be on there that we might be interested in give to us. Is there a reasonable else? expectation of privacy of, of what you ask Alexa on your Echo device? That's the well, question, right? Whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy or not, that doesn't you don't need a reasonable expectation of privacy to rely upon the protections of of the Fourth Amendment against unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. But what makes it unreasonable? That's the point. I mean if they were if they were asking for you well, know, you, so you read video the footage of, of your nanny cam. <laughs> Well, I but mean, if they were asking for video footage of the nanny cam, you know, including the master bedroom, well, there's a, a, a big privacy concern there, you know, a video of a person's bedroom and, and activities that happen in there, versus how much water did you use last month? Did it, did, was well, it more than but, the month but previous? I think, that, that but I think we're confusing two standards here. I mean, people have expectations of privacy, but um, that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not a requirement to be protected against unreasonable government intrusion. And the legal standards for search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment are designed to limit government intrusion. It's not necessarily designed to protect some some degree of privacy that somebody may or may not assert under a given circumstance. But These it's unreasonable. Protect all of us. You but know? but that's the whole point. It's unreasonable. And anytime you have that word in a statute or in a, a legal theory, that means the court has to determine what is reasonable. And in a case here, you know, if I if if the tables were turned a little bit and the uh, the defendant wanted to it, it, it wasn't the defendant's uh, echo, but the defendant knew that that there was something on that echo that would exonerate him. You know, I'd rather the owner of the Echo's privacy be massively violated than have some innocent guy be convicted of murder. You know, and that's the balancing test that I think you have to do when confronted with any kind of standard where it's reasonable, where where it's qualified by reasonableness like government intrusion and, and government searching. I just don't see how the government in this particular case, how it can hurt the owner of that Echo that the government should have access to you know, whatever data is on that echo. It's, 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 it, there's nothing there. I, I just don't see there would be anything. I just don't think it's, I, I don't know that it's a good use of taxpayer funds because I don't think they're going to find anything on that echo that really is probative. Well, but in this case, you, you know, it, it's linked up to a, what's called a smart meter. And I think you mentioned about the water. I guess there's some issue about the water and the hot tub in this case. And the meter supposedly measures hourly electricity and water usage and the data um, has shown that, that he had an excessive amount of water during the alleged drowning of Mr. Collins. So that's what they want to try to get off of this. Probably not necessarily. Some don't know. Being don't know aimed, how that would be. I, but I don't know. I don't know how that would be very probative. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to dispute the guy drowned. And if the guy drowned, I don't think there's going to be very much dispute that there was a bathtub full of water, particularly if he was found in it. But again, I don't think that the privacy interest outweighs the 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 court from 
getting that information. Um, all right, let's move on to the next story. Robert Ryan has an interesting story about uh, sanctuary city policy. This is very interesting and very timely right now with our new president coming on board. Um, this arises from the murder of, and I might be saying it wrong, but Kate Steinle, um by a immigrant, and an undocumented illegal alien who was in San Francisco. He had been arrested five times, and uh, San Francisco refuses to – it's a sanctuary city, and they refuse to notify ICE. And so the family of Tate sued San Francisco because had they informed immigration, maybe this guy would have been picked up and deported instead of left on the streets to kill poor Kate. Um, Robert, tell us about this story. Well, I'm sure many of our listeners remember this tragic story of Kate Stenley, a 20, I think, six-year-old young woman uh, who was walking on the San Francisco Pier when she was shot to death by Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez. Um, he was an undocu- undocumented immigrant. He had, was a repeat felon, and he had actually been deported from the United States on five separate separate occasions. Um, you may remember this crime got quite a bit of play in the presidential uh, campaign. Donald Trump yeah. made quite a thing about this because he used it as, a, as kind of an indictment of the concept of sanctuary cities um, as a whole and uh, made it sort of a centerpiece of his get tough on immigrants and get tough on illegal immigration stance that was such a uh, focus of his campaign. Uh, now, the Stanley family filed a federal wrongful death lawsuit um, against the, the U.S. government, and I'll get to that in a second, um, but also against the city of San Francisco and against its former sheriff, saying that they were to blame because they never notified Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, when uh, Lopez Sanchez was released from a local jail earlier in 2015. Um, now, the lawsuit was thrown out as against San Francisco and the San Francisco sh- sheriff because the magistrate judge who ruled on the motion for summary judgment, which is a way for parties to a lawsuit to ask the court to just decide it basically on the facts that everybody can agree are undisputed, um, that there was no law that requires the city of San Francisco to tell ICE upon the release of undocumented immigrants held in its jail, and there was no law that forbid the sheriff from formulating a policy against such notification to ICE uh, concerning undocumented immigrants who were in the local jails and then released from custody. Um, So uh, this whole concept of of sanctuary cities is quite interesting, and it's quite controversial. You know, there's over 200 state and local jurisdictions who have stated policies against notifying immigration authorities concerning undocumented immigrants held in local jails. Um, However, it's not a particularly set policy, and there's no kind of legal standard or unifying definition of what this policy constitutes. Different jurisdictions handle it in different ways. Sometimes felons, they notify them, but misdemeanors, they do not. Um, sometimes it requires multiple felonies before they're notified. Some people have a, a blanket ban against notifying ICE for any any uh, illegal immigrant held in jail upon release. Um, so basically, the, the court in this case said that there is no law that prohibits such a policy. San Francisco was free to institute this policy. And so therefore, um, you know, the unfortunate uh, family of this poor young woman uh, has no recourse against San Francisco or the sheriff as a result of the failure to notify ICE when this guy was released from uh, a San Francisco jail prior to this murder. Now, 
all is not lost, however, because apparently Lopez Sanchez uh, used a firearm that he had stolen from a vehicle uh, that was being used by a Bureau of Land Management agent. And the, uh, the Bureau of Land Management had argued that they're not responsible for criminal acts performed with one of their firearms after its theft. Uh, the judge rejected that theory and said, no, uh, the Bureau can be sued for negligently storing the firearm in the vehicle or the agent uh, for negligently allowing Lopez Sanchez access to the vehicle, and therefore they do remain in the suit under the negligence claim uh, by the family. Yeah, I think that's a good rule. But, you know, this kind of highlights this whole issue about sanctuary cities, and this is particularly important here in Los Angeles, uh, in Los Angeles County, where we've had the Board of Supervisors passing rules that they're going to totally defy any rule that comes down from Trump's administration uh, seeking to remedy some of these situations. And i got to tell you, I, I think even the Hispanic community, I think any community uh, uh, of any minority community would likely support – something where it gets rid of the bad apples you know most hispanic people that are here documented or not the ones that i've come into contact with they work really hard they do jobs that that americans might not be willing to take and i I saw great examples of that in the in the southeast where there were farming communities where when a local government enacted some rule that made all the immigrants leave nobody could do the work. Nobody can do the work that these immigrants can do. So most of these guys are are good people, and they're just trying to make a living and support their family. And I can see the uh, sympathy for them. Uh, And quite frankly, I see the need for them in California's agricultural economy, uh, for example. But I think that those very people are, are very unhappy with the few bad apples that run around committing crimes, because it, it it's, it, it hurts the whole community when you have that. So I would like to see something done, and, and I would I think that the Trump administration might consider something like a federal law that allows tort claims against sanctuary cities uh, for the crimes committed by people who would otherwise have been deported. And I can well, see a law requiring notification to I, instead of having policies these these you know unwritten policies or very wishy-washy and ambiguous policies, I think there should be a federal law that says prior to the release of any undocumented immigrant from jail, if they're in jail, we don't want them here. And if, well, if the, there's some, to, some there's law some that requires notification There's a little bit of background, ICE, though, good. of why the issue of sanctuary cities came up in the first place. The problem arose when, in immigrant communities, there was a real reluctance to cooperate with law enforcement in the investigation of crimes for fear that identifying oneself could lead to further inquiry concerning immigration status, which could then lead to deportation. So many of these policies arose because local police chiefs and police forces uh, were having a hell of a time solving crimes in these communities because people were so reluctant to step forward for fear that in identifying themselves as either a witness or a victim of criminal activity, they would identify themselves with respect to their undocumented status and they would face deportation. So the concept of a sanctuary city didn't come up because we wanted the police force or these, these these municipalities wanted to shield felons from deportation. It was a way to try to remove 
immigration enforcement from local enforcement activities so that the police could do their job and solve crimes and have the victims and the witnesses who were undocumented come forward and participate in the law enforcement and the prosecution activity without fear of their immigration status compromising them. So, you know, we have kind of a, we have this clash here where, you know, local law enforcement wanted to just put the whole immigration enforcement thing to the, to the back burner so that they could solve crimes in these communities. And that was the idea behind sanctuary cities. Now, when this became a political football in the presidential campaign, that whole thing got twisted around, that somehow, you know, liberal San Francisco was shielding, uh, you know, even the worst of the worst from deportation because they were so such slavish, you know, defenders of the undocumented. And that wasn't the reason for the policy in San Francisco. And as near as I can tell, it's not the reason for the policy in any of the other 200 jurisdictions who have this policy. It's because local law enforcement wanted to solve crimes in those communities that they couldn't do if the victims and the witnesses to those crimes had immigration enforcement actions hanging over their head if they participated in uh, or cooperated with the police. Yeah, I, that, that's a great point, but I think that it could be solved in a different way. I think that it could be it it, it would be very clear that the only time police are uh, required to notify ICE is when a person is undocumented and they have been arrested for violating some law, some and it could be a, a, a misdemeanor or a felony, you know, certain any, any kind of misdemeanor, any kind of crime involving you know, violence, trying to steal or robbing somebody. Those should be reported. We don't need those people here. And but it but specifically it should not apply to somebody who is just a witness. Why that has nothing to do with anything. Um but we do have a a, a serious immig- undocumented immigrant problem in our country and the Trump administration is going to do something about it. The question just is how far it's going to go. But I think that, you know, this is the United States, and we are a nation of laws. And if we have laws, the city should follow it. And, and San Francisco and the county of Los Angeles and the city of Los Angeles, they shouldn't have the uh, the right – to simply decide, well, we're not going to listen to federal law because we don't agree with it. Well, and but that's, the, that's what the judge determined, though. There is no law that requires them to participate in this program. Oh, and that was the reason for the summary judgment. There, oh, if for there's sure. a statute that gets passed that would compel such cooperation, I mean, first of all, that would kind of set up some serious uh, separation of powers issues here and some federal and, and state jurisdiction issues. But mm-hmm. as it stands right now, there is nothing that compels them to comply. Right. In, in it was the a, face it was of, a proper rule. In the face of such a, uh, a law, they're free to set their own policies, and I think that's what resulted in the outcome in this particular case. Exactly. But I think that's where we need the, to, to change it. So, for example, Trump said that if – Sanctuary, if sanctuary cities don't change their ways and, and stop defying uh, U.S. foreign policy that way, then the Trump administration will consider withdrawing all federal support for those cities. Um, that could really hurt a lot of people, particularly low-income people that depend on federal subsidies for their for their just to live and survive, and you know, healthcare costs and things like that. Um, but I think that if the Trump administration were to pass a law that required cities, you know, local police departments to notify ICE and another law that permitted federal tort claims against states or uh, local governments or government agencies in the event that they didn't comply with those laws, 
I, I think that would force compliance much more. And instead of hurting uh, the very people we want to protect, good, honest people that just need some help from the federal government, uh, it would it would basically be borne by the taxpayers and the voters, and those voters would vote the people out in the cities that that refuse to comply with federal law. Personally, I think both of those both laws of those nature would be unconstitutional. But that's probably a, a discussion for a different day. Probably. All right, let's move on to the next case, the next story. Again, you're listening to Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio with Reed Brightman, Mark Leonardo, and Ryan, Robert Ryan. And Mark Leonardo has a very interesting case, another government thing. Um, leading Republicans are very concerned about uh, rising health care costs, and they think that there's a malpractice crisis. But experts don't agree. So, Mark, why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, according to the Republicans, uh, frivolous lawsuits are driving up malpractice insurance premiums and forcing doctors out of business. And they're saying that doctors and hospitals live in fear of litigation. And in order to protect themselves, they're ordering excessive tests and treatments to make it all, as a consequence, it makes health care unaffordable for Americans. So uh, Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan and Republican Tom Price, who's been tapped by uh, uh, Donald Trump to be the nation's top health official, uh, they're vowing to make tort reform a key part of their replacement plan for Obamacare. Um, but as you mentioned, according to a lot of the researchers and the industry experts, um, the reality doesn't really match up to the GOP rhetoric. Uh, they're saying that the nation's medical malpractice insurance industry is running along just fine. And the last time we had a, a true crisis was over a decade ago. Um, and they're saying, you know, so it's actually it's a wonderful time for doctors looking for coverage. It's never been easier. It's better for insurers. Um, and doctors are paying, have not increased in right, medical malpractice. They're, they're saying doctors are paying less than they did back in 2001, you know, 16 you know, isn't years this ago. The, isn't this the same thing we hear periodically, you know, when we hear that, oh, you know, like the, the greedy trial lawyers are filing frivolous lawsuits and insurance rates are going up for pick a business, pick an industry, right? And so now we have to institute tort reform. And at the end of the day, tort reform turns out just to be shorthand for making uh, injured consumers, injured injured uh, people, uh, shortchanging them and providing them without some method of redress in order to protect some some class of uh, of wrongdoer, whether that's a big bank, whether that's doctors, whether that's uh, a polluting industry, whether that's a defective product being made by a particular manufacturer. It all seems to go back to let's try to figure out some way to make trial lawyers the boogeyman. And instead of looking at the victims of this type of conduct, let's turn the perpetrators of this conduct into the victims and say that, oh, the trial lawyers are, are, are trying to put them out of business. So let's rig the rules so they can get off scot-free when they engage in misconduct. I mean, this, this is certainly uh, uh, old wine and new bottles, as near as I can tell. Absolutely well, right, Robert. And, and the problem that I have with this is that, first of all, you might be surprised to learn that – the third leading cause of death in the United States is medical malpractice, medical errors. And uh, it's just after heart attacks and cancer, I think. It's a big deal. And it's something like more than 400,000 people are injured or killed every year because of medical errors. And, you know, doctors should be. I like the thought of doctors being very worried that if they make a mistake, they're going to get their butt sued. And just as a matter of fairness, 
if some person, you know, if you amputate the wrong leg uh, or cause somebody to go blind or, or have brain damage, that person's going to suffer for the rest of their life, and they're going to have huge medical costs and, and, and pain and suffering. And then you have stupid states like California where we have this, this cap on pain and suffering for medical malpractice of 250000 which was set in 1975 and hasn't changed since then. No no adjustment for inflation. You know, $250,000 in 1975 could buy you probably three houses. Now it buys you a McDonald's hamburger. It's ridiculous. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, and it's really nothing. a way of shifting the cost of those mistakes away from the, the, the community or the people who are best able to, A, quantify them, and B, insure against them onto right. people who are least able to bear those costs, which is the injured party. Exactly. The other part, I think the other part is it, other part is it takes away access to the civil justice system because right. lawyers can't take these cases. It, it's a defense haven for a medical malpractice case is a defense haven. It's just a, a boon for boondoggle for them. But for plaintiffs' lawyers, it's very difficult. And if and with these caps, it makes it difficult for them to take on the medium or the smaller cases. And, and plaintiffs have no place to go, and they they're injured and they they suffer for the rest of their lives, like you said. With no What's place worse, to go. It, even 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 where it would normally be a big case, and, and because of the pain and suffering, huge egregious injuries, uh, a lot of times a lawyer won't take it because of the nature of the plaintiff, the injured party. I had a, a friend whose housekeeper was horribly mangled by a, a, a very negligent doctor, and uh, she ended up losing her entire intestines, all of them. She, I think she had something like six inches left. Well, she has to, for the rest of her life, she's fed by, by an IV in her arm. She can't eat anything, and you know she's likely to die because getting nutrition intravenously like that generally wrecks your, your liver. Well, you know, I took that to several medical malpractice firms, very reputable ones, and nobody wanted to take it because she was undocumented. So uh, this was before the law changed, so she was undocumented. So the question was, what was her earning capacity in her home country of Mexico, of course? And that wasn't much. And she, um, she even here, she wasn't making very much money. So the, the lost future earnings wasn't enough. And the what every one of those lawyers said to me is, this will cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars, at least two hundred, two hundred and fifty thousand, to prosecute the case just for the experts and the medical testimony and all this investigation that they have to do. And it's just not worth it because, you know, the big money right now, as the law stands, is in the pain and suffering and lost future earnings. I mean, the lost future earnings as opposed to pain and suffering. Whereas if a jury would be allowed to award an unlimited amount uh, or at least something in the seven figures for pain and suffering, she would, she'd, get, she'd get millions for pain and suffering, no problem. And so then they would have taken the case. So she ended up getting nothing. She has absolutely nothing, and she can't afford any of the medical uh, costs that she's incurring. So guess what? We're paying for it because, of course, she just qualifies – uh, for I think it's medic Cal, and she she applied after the fact and she got got that and which would have happened anyway. She she was in the hospital for months, um, and they had to transfer her finally to a facility that would agree to to take her, even though she, nobody's paying them. That's what happens with these laws, and it's so, very unfortunate. 
So what the Republicans are trying to do here, they have, they have three main ideas. One is the cap we just talked about. They want to make it a national cap. Um, that's number one. Number two, they want to do um, they want to establish clinical practice guidelines for doctors to follow and to use to defend malpractice claims. So if they do what this protocol says and they're sued for it, then they'll have an affirmative defense. And then the third thing is, which is the most controversial, is they want to, to create a state-run tribunal to rule on injury claims. So no. it, would require, it would require patients to prove gross negligence, which is a higher legal standard than typically exists in civil court, and then they would create panels of medical experts to screen the cases for merit. Oh, right. Medical experts are going to pass on the judgment of doctors within their own community and determine whether or not what they did was something bad. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Now, no, no. who would have any problem with submitting their malpractice case to a panel of doctors and asking their opinion concerning whether it has validity? Gee, I right. wonder if there's anything wrong with that. Talk about right. putting the, the, the foxes in charge of the hen house. Oh, my God. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's a ridiculous thing. I mean, that's pathetic. They couldn't come up with anything yeah. even more disguised than that? Oh, my God. <laughs> You know, I think one of their concerns is that doctors order a lot of tests uh, that are unnecessary just to be able to show that they're looking under every stone and trying to provide very thorough and comprehensive care. But I think, I, I think if you have a, a, a your normal rule book that says, okay, if you have a, a patient that has this disease or presents with these symptoms, do these eight steps, you know, that takes all the discretion out from the well, doctor. Also, and it's, also, well it's, also predicated, it's also predicated on such a fallacy, which is that when these lawsuits are brought, they're, they're frivolous. You know, I mean, you know, to try to find an attorney right. to take a case on a contingency fee, right. he's not going to get paid unless he gets a recovery. Right off the bat, a whole bunch of meritorious cases are going to get weeded out because although they might not have merit, there's not enough damages to warrant the involvement of an attorney and all the work it's going to take to successfully litigate that case um, to fruition, right? That's number one. Number two is the tremendous out-of-pocket expense for prosecuting these types of cases. You need medical experts who are going to opine that whatever happened fell below the standard of care. That costs tens of thousands of dollars. So the right. idea that just the economics of these cases has that already exists isn't a significant bar to a lot of meritorious cases being uh, asserted in the first uh, place. That's just a complete fallacy. I mean, that's right. just false. Just false. and we need it, and we need yeah. the, and we need it because again, I think that while it, it is a horrible problem right now in this country with medical errors, um, I think there'd be a lot more if doctors didn't have to worry about it. And I like doctors being concerned. Uh, about liability, they should. Yeah, be I want my doctor being concerned about liability. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And I bet you the Republicans uh, promulgating this in Congress would like to make sure that their doctors are concerned about potential liability if they make a mistake on uh, in treating them or a member of their families or loved ones. Oh well, they'll probably do some ridiculous thing where uh, this law they'll doesn't get apply they'll to uh, themselves <laughs> to condemn members of Congress. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on. You are looking. F- uh, you're listening to Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio with uh, Reed Brightman, Mark Leonardo, and Robert Ryan. We're going to move on to our Ask the Expert segment. It's time to Ask the Experts. Ask the Experts is a segment each week that features an interview with an expert. Now back to Ask the Experts on Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice. 
Okay, a Los, area, a Los Angeles area doctor is seeking class action status for a lawsuit against Molina Healthcare, saying the insurer owes him thousands of dollars for caring for Medi-Cal patients under the Affordable Care Act. The lawsuit was filed on December 30th in L.A. County, and uh, it, this was on behalf of Dr. Manuel Figueroa of the Associated Hispanic Physicians of Southern California, and his lawyer is Brian Mahaney. I hope I'm saying that right, Mr. Mahaney. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about this case. I find it very interesting. Well, Dr. Figueroa, as well as a bunch of his colleagues, say that they were shortchanged by Molina Healthcare. Congress, um, after the Affordable Care Act was passed, um, gave a little bit of a bump to doctors who primarily treat poor people, Medi-Cal patients, Medicaid patients in other states. The thought was that we wanted to give some sort of financial incentive to doctors so that they would continue to treat these patients. Congress said, hey, if your practice is primarily treating um, these um, patients of last resort, I guess for lack of a better word, patients that um, are relying on the Medi-Cal system, that will allow you to get reimbursed at the Medicare rates. I know that sounds very technical, but for doctors, that's a really big deal. That means they get um, a little bit more money. And Dr. Figueroa, as well as other doctors in his group, say, hey, we never got paid by Molina. We got paid by Anthem, Blue Cross, um, but we didn't get paid by Molina. They didn't give us the right reimbursement rate. So after a year of going back and forth, we filed a lawsuit in December uh, of 2016. How very interesting. Now, so you, that's interesting because, you know, Medicare, we deal with that in our personal injury practice here. Of course, our clients uh, see doctors, uh, most of whom uh, take the cases on lien. Uh, and then when the case settles, uh, when there's a, for example, when there's a, uh, an emergency room bill, uh, and our client doesn't have health insurance. The the emergency room will bill, I, I believe it's Medicare, and Medicare pays just pennies. I mean, a lot of times it's five percent of the total bill. So you're telling me that Medi-Cal pays even less than that? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. So these doctors that um, do this work are providing a great community service. A lot of people think, oh, doctors they make hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. Many of them. Um, as you well know, don't. And those that treat uh, Medicaid patients make very little, actually, compared to their colleagues. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I can't believe anybody. I, it's it's insulting at how low the doctors are paid on that, but I, I figure they just make it up on their regular paying patients. I don't think anybody could stay in business uh, at with Medicare and Medi-Cal rates. Um, literally, you know, you have $13,000 bills where they pay 500 or $600. It's, I, I don't know how you deal with that. And we were just talking about uh, the cost of medical insur- med- medical malpractice insurance. Um, you know, that has to – I mean, that even though it hasn't gone up since 2001, it's still very expensive. And these guys who are treating patients that have no insurance and they have to rely on Medicare and Medi-Cal, they still have to pay that same – big insurance premium and the rent and they have to pay for their nurses and their equipment and everything. There's, there's, they're expecting to make a living like everybody else after going to, you know, school for a hundred years, you know, you, you know how long it takes to become a doctor. So it's surprising that, that these guys can even make a living 
even survive and keep their doors open. I've heard that a lot of doctors have actually closed their doors because of the reimbursement rate. They call it reimbursement, which is ridiculous. Uh, but the pay rates from, from Medicare and Medi-Cal are so low. Have you heard about that? Uh, I have. And that's why Congress, um, in its wisdom, said, hey, these doctors that are providing um, care for the uh, poorest of the poor um, should get paid a little bit better. And so at least for two years, they funded it and gave them a bump. Unfortunately, currently, that little pay bump isn't being funded right now. So the doctors and that are doing just, Medicaid are just getting the Medicaid rates. And But that's just... But, but you targeted Molina Healthcare. What is that? Molina Healthcare is one of the largest healthcare organizations in the United States, and it's actually based in uh, California. They're, I forget what their annual uh, revenues are, but it's in the billions, billions with a B, of dollars per year. Um, we say, hey, you got the money from Uncle Sam. You're just not paying these doctors. Wait a second. So Molina Healthcare is not a – uh, an insurance company it's a it's it, they're like a hospital they're they're like a medical group they're not a medical group they they're actually the the intermediary they pay the providers so in california if you're doing a lot of medicaid work or medicare work Molina will often be the one that um handles the money and pays it out their um council had told us at one point in the litigation well, Congress passed this law, and Congress said we're supposed to pay you more money, but Congress didn't tell us when we have to pay it. So theoretically, um, what Molina is saying is, well, we can hold it for a year, we can hold it for two years, we can hold it as long as we want. Well, that'll be a good class action. Um, I, I, that's, that's, a, that's a silly argument. Um, so, But why would these doctors, if that's the case, why would these doctors just – why wouldn't they just say, all right, we're not going to go through Molina Healthcare. We're going to just bill Medicare and Medicaid directly. Then they don't have to worry about Molina getting in the way and not giving them their money. Well, unfortunately, um, they have to go through uh, Molina. There's a number of different ways that they can bill, but for certain things, they are required to go through Molina, and Molina is holding their money. As I said before, um, Anthem Blue Cross has been paying it. Um, Molina hasn't been paying it. Why are they? What requires them to go through Molina? Um, I'm not exactly sure what requires them to go through uh, Molina, depending on how they are um, set up and how they're doing their billing and what type of services. So I know, for example, that uh, Molina has much of the state contracts for people with behavioral health issues. Interesting. And if Interesting. you are a physician providing that type of service, you bill through Molina. This isn't Molina's money. This is the government's money. Molina just doesn't want to turn it over. I think that's terrible. It sounds like, at least though, the good thing is that the the patients the, the the patients are getting the care that they need. It's just that the doctors are not getting paid, and it's important to resolve because we don't want doctors closing their business or doctors saying to people, "Look, you know, if you don't have Anthem or Aetna or normal insurance." We're not going to take you. And I'll tell you, my father was a doctor for 49 years. He would never take a Medicare patient. He would never take a Medi-Cal patient because he didn't want to be subject to their rules. And so a lot of people missed out on a really good doctor. I think there's a lot of doctors like that. Uh, we're going to get worse, especially if we don't pay them. Exactly. 
yeah, they, we have to ha- we have to support them and keep their doors open. Otherwise, people aren't going to have quality medical care. All right, uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining our show. We're going to move on to Reed's rant, and my rant this week is about government accountability, and it it kind of dovetails with some of the stuff that we've seen on the stories today, where people in the government should be responsible, uh, or at least the government should be responsible for the wrongful conduct of other people, of their employees or the other members of their agencies. And we see things all the time where a government, uh, like a politician, like a member of the Board of Supervisors in L.A. County or some member of Congress, people will take totally illegal positions because they have their own agenda and their own ideals and they'll take illegal positions because they know that the victim of their illegal position will likely not do anything about it because it's too costly. And even when you win, the you don't get damages, you don't get attorney's fees, you know, so you could spend years fighting uh a, a very strong, powerful government agency that has free free legal services from the uh, attorney general's office and when you win okay they give you what you're entitled to in terms of like a permit or or a license or something like that but you don't get damages and meanwhile your business is out of business or something along those lines uh you also have things where the police use excessive force or the police run somebody over or the police pull somebody over for the with with no probable cause and the poor victim of that has to spend lots and lots of money uh, in legal fees defending themselves only to have the case dropped. It's not right. I, don't, I, I think that the government should be responsible. And when we say the government, the government is just a represent, representative of the people, the taxpayers. So you know, we have over 30 million people in the state of California. If the government does something wrong and you know, some victim of – admittedly wrongful conduct, suffers a $100,000 loss. Is it fair for that one victim to suffer the $100,000 loss and bear the burden of it? Or is it more fair for the entire 30 million people in California, the taxpayers, to bear the burden of it? And the government would be the the payer of that because the government has the power to tax. What do you guys think? Mark, what do you think? Well, you know, you've told me some stories about um, building and getting permits and and like uh, I think there's a guy out in Malibu who uh, got on the city council just to obstruct you personally with your own building projects, and he gets away with it. And he's yep. cost you years and years and thousands and thousands of dollars in cost. Is that correct? Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hundreds of and thousands. Yes. And he gets away with it, and the city has no consequence. And someday down the road, you'll get your permit, and you're left holding the bag. And that's just not right. So I, I totally agree with your assessment. I think that's ridiculous. The poor taxpayers of this state and country. I mean, <laughs> if there's somebody else who's trying to tap into their hide, I don't know who it is. I mean, if if somebody who's in government takes an act along the lines of what Reed's just described, there are various legal procedures that are available to that person. There's writs of mandamus. You can go to court. You can have unreasonable administrative decisions corrected or overturned. You can do a whole bunch of different things. But now to say that you're going to start allowing damage claims for some speculative or un- 
unproven harm that supposedly has resulted from these acts is opening up a whole new can of worms that's just going to make the public purse wide open and subjected to a whole bunch of frivolous lawsuits, I think. And one of the examples that I want to point to before we think about going down this road is what about the criminal conduct of certain governmental employees that the governmental agency is responsible for? You know, we had this horrible situation in in, in uh, Los Angeles Unified School District where these, we had a couple of bad apple teachers who were molesting the children. And a horrible thing, obviously, and a criminal act. And, of course, those teachers should be prosecuted and imprisoned if guilty. But the school district had to pay out tens upon tens upon tens of millions of dollars in damages to the families of those children based on some speculative idea that the principal should have known this was going on or that there were some warning signals that the principal didn't pick up on and so that therefore the school administration is now responsible for the overtly criminal conduct of one of its employees. Now that would never be the situation in private industry, right? But because it's a governmental entity, those lawsuits were filed and because the lawsuits were so hot to handle and the, the facts were so egregious, just like buckets of public money was pushed across the table at these claimants. You know, and so you have to think carefully about damage claims against governmental employees or governmental uh, uh, functionaries um, over and above what the law already provides to try to correct their decisions if those decisions are incorrect or taken in contravention to the law. Well, the problem is that sometimes, for example, I had uh, a particular member of the Board of Supervisors, her staff, said to me, look, we know that the position we're taking is unlawful, and we know you're going to sue, but it looks better for us politically if you sue and a judge forces us to rezone your property than for us to just permit it to be rezoned. And that's they, they know they're not upholding the law, and my my recourse is exactly what you said. I have to do a writ of mandamus. It's a two-year process uh, when you get down to it because I have to exhaust all my administrative remedies first. Meanwhile, I'm covering the cost of carrying this property uh, for two years, and I don't get the use of it for two years. And uh, people who would like to buy it or, or develop it or do whatever it is, that doesn't happen because we're waiting years for this to get resolved. And if a court comes to the conclusion that, yes, this action constitutes a taking, the problem is they, there's no damages. They just say, oh, okay, well, then we'll rezone it. And there's no accounting for whatever damages I can prove, actual out-of-pocket costs that I've suffered. And that encourages these government people to do things even if they know it was against the law. And I don't think that I should be the only one to bear that cost. The remedy is attorney's fees for, for the successful writ of mandamus, in my mind, not damages. That would be great, not but damages. that isn't a remedy. They don't allow yeah. it. Yeah. That so, would, that would anyway. be a change that I would, be, I would support. Yeah. That wouldn't stop the officials from doing things wrong that they know is wrong. Because right. it doesn't come out of their pocket. It comes out of the, our pocket, everyone's pocket. Well, it's not going to come out of the official's pocket anyway, but it, it's more just uh, um, it encourages people to uh, seek redress where something is wrong, where, where, where the government takes wrongful conduct, because, you know, yes, it might cause a couple years delay, but at least if they're going to get damages just made whole, um, then they might be more encouraged to do that instead of just bend over and, and accept it. And I see that happen all the time with uh, real estate developments and things like that. Anyway, we are out of time, so we're going to have to wrap up the show. Uh, we will listen to – we'll have a great show next week, and we look forward to seeing you then. 
Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.